Brown Genius is a podcast in full color spectrum dedicated to providing a platform for underrepresented voices. This Chicano Picasso production is brought to you with generous support from the Arts Affinity Group. Thank you for listening. One, two, one. many sick, many sick. One go many drink, many drink. Diversify scope, money straight, money straight. Proper simple, human being, human being. So fresh, so clean, my mind, limousine, my quasar, so my crown, I king, my beam, so mean, my gangster lane, I bomb your scene, my people get free, root the tradition, set the condition, break the system, forward transmission. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, professionals, novices, students, teachers, lights of the universe, we are back. This is Molina Speaks. And I am the love mestiza, Cherie Brown. And we are with you for another episode of Brown Genius, where we explore the full color spectrum. We break out of the typical dichotomies of black and white, right or left, Broncos or Raiders. <laughs> We're here to open up the dialogue, and we are very blessed today to have a guest in the house who is uh, very revered throughout the city of Denver and the state of Colorado for her work as a professor, uh, an advocate for the people, a professional in all regards. Uh, Ms. Lisa Calderon is a director of the Community Reentry Project in Denver, where she supervises six staff who work on behalf of formerly incarcerated persons to help them successfully transition back into the community. She is an adjunct faculty member for CU Denver's Ethnic Studies Department. She has taught in academia for over 10 years in the areas of women's studies, sociology, and criminal justice. She holds a master's degree, a law degree, and is currently working on a doctorate in education. She is an advocate for women, for people of color, for victims of domestic violence, and human beings within the criminal justice system. She is highly educated and uncompromising in her commitment to ethics, civil rights, and human dignity. Welcome, Lisa. Hey. Oh, thank you. Amazing introduction. <laughs> What's that like to hear? <laughs> to, to remind hear my son. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to your mother. Listen to that. Did you hear that? Did you, did you hear what they say about me? <laughs> All right. So uh, let's skip some of the formalities that often happen in these sorts of interviews. Uh, with the largest prison population per capita in the history of the world, and with the Trump administration preparing to take office, how do you get up in the morning and imagine a better world for the communities that you advocate for? Well, thank you for that question, because it's been weighing heavily on my mind. Um, you know, we were on this trajectory of um, finally, I think, coming to some kind of consensus that criminal justice reform is um, long overdue and it's become more of a bipartisan issue in terms of um, the mass incarceration of, of human beings, of brown and black bodies is unsustainable. Um, now that we have someone who has surrounded himself with people who promote the 
mass incarceration, hypercriminalization of uh, folks of color, of poor folks, of homeless folks. Um, it is now feeling like we are going into a period of very dark times where a lot of those efforts coming out of, um, you know, the Clinton era, um, where there was policies enacted that really were devastating to communities of color in our name, right? They were, they were doing it for us, apparently. Mm-hmm. So finally getting to a point where we were thinking like the, the tide was turning, and now it really feels like, yeah, it's turning, but now to a tidal wave. Mm. And how do we um, stop it or at least reduce the casualties that are in its wake? It was very much like damage control, right? It's at, like... At this uh, point, yes. Yeah. So a, a great deal of your work involves the prospect or promise of dramatically reducing the prison population. Given that we're in this moment, uh, how can we possibly imagine a world without prisons during this time? Yeah, I, I, I particularly like this question um, because a lot of the space that I live in as, you know, someone who helps to organize communities, someone who... Uh, is very much so an advocate for many things, um, who is a mother um, and just a a being who's who's trying to, you know, live and adapt and, and affect change. Um, the imagination is really important to me. And um, I have to live in an imaginative space in order for my my creative self to function um as well as being able to envision uh what i want my world my future my life to look like i have to live in a visionary space in order to like see where i'm going and one thing that i've really always loved about um you know these ideas of prison and police abolition is that it stretches the imagination so far because it's like, how could that possibly be? But it emits, it forces you to stretch so far beyond what is comfortable. And, and it forces you to reimagine every structure that is in place that if we did not have prison, if we did not have police, where does justice take place and what does it look like and having to re reimagine what justice is in the community and and what structures would have to be uh would have to take their place you know and and it i feel like that's a very beautiful imaginative space for me personally um and it forces me to think about how I want to interact with justice on a day-to-day basis with other people, with other beings. Like, if this were not an option, if this were not even a thing, how would we take care of and handle justice in our communities, in our schools, in our homes, um, as neighbors, even? Um, and and so I, I really appreciate, like, radical reimaginings of future and of our current state because, you know, those are the ones who are going to, you know, I, I love how, how you know, uh, one role that um, pockets of progressives play in the community is that they are, let's, let's have uh, um, tuition-free education, you know, and, like, that feels like such a stretch in the capitalistic mind, but— 
uh, you know, those reimaginings, those those radical reenvisionings of of the world, um, affect change in the imagination of the people of what is possible. And uh, so, yeah, kind of circling back to this question of how can we possibly imagine a world without prisons during this time, seeing as, you know, this is a realm that you inhabit at the moment in in your work and and your professional space. So definitely curious about what you what you think about that. Well, I love the phrase radical reimaginings. You know, sometimes people are afraid of the word radical, but it really is just going to the root of. So if we go to the root of what systemic inequities are out there, you know, you begin to not start from the present, but you actually start from the past and work your way up, right? Because there's a reason why we are here in this time that we are in. You know, the the first time I was turned on to the concept of prison abolition was through Angela Davis's book, Are Prisons Obsolete?, And this was even way before Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and really questioning this whole concept of punishment uh, in the way that we've come to know it today. And uh, I remember one of the things that really struck me was, you know, if we, uh, you know, at the time of of slavery abolition, they could not imagine uh, a time where we wouldn't have slavery, and yet abolitionists worked toward that future anyway. It was going to be a future that they wouldn't see and perhaps their children wouldn't see, but they work toward it anyway. And how do you imagine something that may never come to pass in your lifetime? So it raises a lot of really interesting questions about, so then what do you replace it with? You know, what do you replace a system that initially was about reform. You know, prisons were a reform effort initially, um, as opposed to corporal punishment uh, for folks or the mass use of debtors' prisons, etc. The root word of of penitentiary is penance. So -hmm. this Christian concept of redemption, right? You reflect on your sins, you do penance, you do hard work, and you come out a better person. We've lost the concept of redemption, and I'm not even talking now in the religious sense necessarily. I'm I'm really talking about giving people the opportunity to find a better place from where they came and recognizing that sometimes people make poor decisions out of poor options. And so if we're able to expand their range of options— then people have more alternatives and more opportunities to be able to access um, different modes of uh, interacting with the world. You know, the brain likes the familiar, so it tends to do the same thing over and over again, even when it knows it's not good for it. And until new behaviors are formed and molded, people will tend to keep going back. It's not easy. You know, if we think of any of us, how ready are you to change a behavior tomorrow and and sustain that for the rest of your life? But we don't get to that part of the argument when we are so focused as a society of building a better cage. You know, how can we make the lives better for people who are incarcerated while they're in a facility? 
And that's important to also look at. But what it does is it can also suck all of the oxygen away from the radical reimaginings of what else could be a possibility for people's lives. I also think that people may tend to resist the idea of prison abolition or um, police uh, elimination of police in neighborhoods, etc., because it goes to our fears about then what? How do you hold people accountable who hurt other people? And I think for those of us who are really looking at alternative ways um, of holding people accountable and yet having healing in our communities, it's not an either or, it's a both and. If we think about how do you hold people accountable when, I mean, there are some terrible, terrible things that happen in this world. I used to be a legal director for an abused women's program, so I've seen it up front. Um, I've, I've seen, um, I've had women that I've worked with been killed by their partners, right? So I've seen some of the worst kinds of things happen, and especially within my own family as well, um, having um, generational violence. And what I've also learned from those experiences is that Yes, for the people who are abusing other people, there needs to be interventions, there needs to be a way to stop that behavior, and there needs to be a way to move forward. But in our current structures, it's overly focused on punishment. And we don't get to the conversation about what could it look like to heal, to hold accountable, to redeem. Um, and and for the victim to uh, move forward and to be, you know, held and encompassed and all of those those things. So you know, going from working with victims to then working with, you know, folks who are deemed to be offenders. What I've learned is that they're often, you know, the same side uh, or, or the other side of of, a, of the same coin, and that is many have trauma histories. So if we don't address trauma and we don't address who's doing the hurting and why they're doing the hurting and different ways of accountability, we can't get at what are other possibilities because our energy is going to what are better punishments. Mm. Since we're kind of in the in this vein of radical re-envisionings, um, I'm curious as to, you know, how important is imagination or vision in your work that you do? Um, is that something that you feel like you utilize at all in, in how you come about solutions? Well, first just starting in my personal life about how challenging it is um, to reimagine an alternative. So mm-hmm. I'm reminded that... Um, you know, the neighborhood that I'm in, which is in the Cole neighborhood outside of Five Points, Denver, right outside of, you know, downtown Denver, um, it's rapidly gentrifying. There was a group of Latino youth, and you can hear from their comments that they had, you know, been drinking or whatever it may have been, and they started to fight. And so I'm outside my window, and I'm thinking my first impulse, of course, is to call 911. And then I start going through these thoughts in my head about the police will come and 
they may draw their weapons and a young person may get shot and killed. And, you know, the fight was essentially over pretty quickly. But even within that short span of time, I thought, I don't even have options at this point. Like to go out there and to try to break it up, that would put me at risk. Um, it may escalate the situation. Like, so there were just no tools available. The only tool that was available really was calling the police. And so I think that, you know, people who are highly impacted by law enforcement violence, it's, you know, you go through these mental gymnastics about, you know, should I call? Should I not call? What if it makes it worse? What if I don't do anything and it makes it worse? I mean, rather than if we had actually a model of self-efficacy, community efficacy, which is, you know, basically ways that we empower ourselves. You know, if we had a structure that we knew what to do when these types of situations happened in our neighborhood, we had a coming together. And, you know, I'm not talking about a neighborhood watch program because oftentimes those are initiated by um, those who, you know, want to push out a certain type of person from the neighborhood or they are heavily reliant on law enforcement response. And so, you know, my time spent with Insight Women of Color Against Violence, which was a radical women of color organizing um, network that really looked at alternatives to police. What would that look like? You know, and going to your question, if we could not call the police, what would be our options? Mm -hmm. And so really talking and working with community about what would that look like? And part of it was just starting with in ourselves that when we see, for example, you know, sexism or heterosexism, homophobia, et cetera, in our community, in our organizing community. How do we deal with that? You know, how do we hold each other accountable and also in a way that's not using the same types of tools that we use on our oppressor? And so knowing that many times we are traumatized and, and damaged by a lot of those external uh, oppressive injustices that we can internalize and turn on each other, that was one of the most difficult things in my years of organizing was, you know, how do we not use those same tools with each other when we are disappointed or, or hurt uh, with each other than we do when we are actually full on in battle with those who are actually trying to damage us in a very overt way. We need other other tools and mechanisms. So the program that I, I run um, is the Community Ranchery Project, and it actually came about from community conflict with the city of Denver not wanting to build a new jail. On the other hand, we had a jail that was in terrible conditions, right? So on the one hand, when you're fighting for the reduction of mass incarceration, and on the other hand, there are actually people in those facilities who are in need of uh, better conditions. You know, it creates this tension, but it's a healthy tension. And so as a result they, uh, of efforts from organizers to resist that effort, monies were set aside to create alternatives to incarceration. And so that's how Community Ranchery Project was born. And so what we do... Really, it feels like almost every day is reimagine our work. How are we, even though we are working in uh, the Denver County Jail, how do we interface 
in a way with incarcerated people that is meaningful, interactive, that is non uh, paternalistic, etc. How do we work within the rules of a jail? Um, you know, so there's constant negotiation, reimagining, and then how do we know what we do is effective? I mean, all of that is in the mix, and we should be questioning ourselves just like we, we question justice system folks. Mm. So we had the wonderful opportunity of hearing you speak at Bioneers. Um, was it a year or two ago? year ago. Something like that? <laughs> yeah. Um, which uh, Bioneers is is held every year on the CU Boulder campus, and it draws a huge sustainability crowd, people who are there for uh, sustainability efforts um, and, and trying to create new systems around how we take care of the earth and each other in that way. And um, it was extremely uplifting to to have you there and to be making the connection between uh, mass incarceration and sustainability and how it is not a sustainable design, you know, and if we care about designs uh, of uh, coming from us humans and how that affects the planet. And here we are, like, you know, many of us either complicitly or, you know, implicitly, like, supporting these systems that aren't sustainable, it was, it was just a, such a, a beautiful and brilliant connection that I think needs to be made and um, in people's minds, especially if you are claiming to care for sustainability and sustainable designs on the planet. I'm curious as to, you know, how do you feel like you and your message was received at that conference and, um, and, and any other connections that you feel like, or on any other places or any other pockets where mass incarceration um, is very much so relevant beyond just the social justice, you know, spectrum of things and how, you know, making that connection, that it, which seems like a huge leap in some people's minds, but in actuality, like, it's, it's a very tangible and, like, this makes sense. Like, this is not this makes sense because this doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, and we need, we need our people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need our people. Like we need everybody involved in this effort. So, um, yeah, I'm curious as to what you thought about that experience. I think you summed it up really eloquently, be- even better than I did at the <laughs> time when I was trying to figure out now, now you want me to do speak on what, where, because I, I am so used to being in the criminal justice field. It was a, a great opportunity for me to also push my imagination to speak to an audience where those concepts of criminal justice and sustainability for the earth are, are not necessarily go together when you think of each of those independently. But of course, it makes perfect sense. Mm. So I was uh, actually very pleasantly surprised with the reception uh, that I got. And it was a great reminder to me because I do a lot of speaking um, to law enforcement around the need to have gender responsive uh, approaches to working with uh, women, incarcerated women, you know, of, of talking about trauma and the need for a trauma-informed care approach for, for 
anybody who's incarcerated, uh, regardless of gender. And so I'm used to talking in my daily life to those who tend not to listen to me, right? Who, who, you know, you're trying to make a case all of the time about why this is important to do. And if nothing else, it makes your job easier because you are connecting with people in a way that may make them more receptive to what you're telling them as opposed to a, a resistive kind of dynamic. So it's good for me to go outside of my usual arena and get validated that, of course, this makes sense. We have to do this. Our, our system is not sustainable as it currently stands. Coming to the voters and asking for more money, for more jails, or to, to create a bigger system is not an option. It should not be an option anymore. And yet, year after year, the public safety budget grows. It's 50% of our city's budget, usually about half of any kind of government budgets. So the fact that we spend so much money on, you know, what they call public safety, which includes a lot of different things from, from punishment to the, to the emergency response, but not even a fraction of that goes to educating people and keeping them out as part of our regular part of our budget is, is just, to me, that's criminal. Mm. So, you know, so we have we have that in terms of a public policy standpoint of being able to really argue around issues of if the government budget is a moral document, then mm-hmm. it says a lot about our morality as a city that we are emphasizing so much on on spending uh, in in the criminal justice realm. On the on the other hand, I also want to challenge those of us in community about where we are focusing our efforts for reform. I was at a meeting recently and, you know, I was there to talk about, you know, jail reform and people kept wanting to come back to police brutality on the streets, which is important. And I think it's also important to note that um, the majority of the folks in in the room were white folks. Mm. And what, I saw in that interaction, which was frustrating to me, is that they were there in part because of a response to what they've seen in our streets locally and nationally and want to be a part, want to help, want to do the right thing. You know, see the whole Black Lives Movement effort, which is a wonderful thing in terms of, you know, calling attention, galvanizing people, not having one point person, right? It's a diffuse movement, et cetera. But it was also a romanticized type of movement, it seemed like, in many of their minds. Like, you know, I want to be out there and try to save the, you know, next unarmed black man from being killed, right? And, or, you know, being beaten up. And so one, there's no gender analysis about, you know, if you just look at law enforcement violence against men of color, you're missing all of the other spectrum of how women and transgendered people and et cetera are being mistreated by the system. But two, we're not looking for saviors. And so when you focus on those issues that seem to be the most explosive, literally and figuratively going on in the media, and not look at what's happening when people are disappeared in facilities, mm. that's a problem too. So, so I said to them, What do you think happens when an individual goes up against a law enforcement officer 
and is arrested, where do you think they go? Mm -hmm. They go to jail. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you don't want to look at anything that's happening once they are arrested and out of the Mm -hmm. spotlight is a problem to me. So you have to look at criminal justice reform as a continuum. Mm. The point of arrest or even the decision to contact is the very beginning of that point. And then you've got this whole continuum that people go through that there's no one for them there for their support. There's no one there for their court cases. There's no one there when they're locked up or, you know, have to go on uh, probation, right? All of it, they're there to pay their fines. Like, stop just overly focusing on what seems to be familiar to you from what you're seeing on the images and start educating yourself about the continuum that makes up this whole monstrous beast of a structure that is really responsible for the you know setting back the you know the 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 lack of opportunity for generations for this for the folks of today and the folks into the future and so i'm really kind of turned off you know at this point with with those um folks who just want to focus actions on what takes place in the streets. Mm -hmm. I think it's needed and good for them. They can do that. But I really am at this point in my life and my activism and what I know about criminal justice is we need to look at the whole thing from activism in the streets to policy change, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't want to be involved with because it's not the sexy parts Mm -hmm. of criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. Speaking of policy, the Obama administration is often criticized by progressives and cultural radicals for not doing enough. Uh, This notion that, you know, he gives great speeches, he makes convincing gestures, but at the end of the day, the needle doesn't move far enough in the direction of justice. But I know that progress has been made, real progress has been made over the last eight years in the areas of criminal justice reform. Maybe not enough for many of us, but I'm wondering if you could speak to what you've experienced in the direction of real tangible reform that that had inspired you during the Obama era? Well, I hope people, if they didn't get it before, they get it now. No politician can save you. Mm. I don't care what color they are. You know, I, I, I just think that people's expectation of Obama were so high that no mortal could have possibly fulfilled all of those expectations put on his shoulders. That doesn't mean that, you know, he isn't worthy of critique. Um, and, and certainly folks like Cornell West and others, and, and I certainly had frustration as well about why isn't this moving fast enough. On the other hand, um, he, you know, from day one, you know, he had a conservative establishment that was, hell-bent on stopping him no matter what and and made you know no secret that Mm -hmm. that's what they were going to do so you know i think in reflecting back i think that there i don't know how it could have been fundamentally different for one man as president um to make all of the changes i think that all of us wanted him to do instead i would prefer to look at the structure around him 
the structure around him that still allowed, you know, a, a, a neoliberal elite establishment to forget about the everyday pains that, uh, that, you know, a lot of people had. And I think that there's a lot that's been made today about, you know, people forgot about the white working class. Well, people forgot about the poor a long time ago, mm. regardless of race. You know, if you look at the political rhetoric um, with mainstream politicians, it's always about the middle class. Mm-hmm. And now it seems under this, you know, uh, white wave of anger, now they're talking about the working class, which actually can be also synonymous with, you know, poor white folks or white folks who were left behind um, from the, you know, economic turnaround. But folks of color have always been there. Mm -hmm. So I think that when we're getting into this era of Trump, people are going to now realize how much Obama did do, how much he did um, stem the tide from the complete tidal wave. I think that there are also things that um, we need to do some soul searching about, like, you know, Obama um, under his administration uh, got rid of more immigrant folks than any other person uh, in history, any other president in history. And so that there needs to be a reckoning around that as well, right? He accelerated deportations under his administration, just like Clinton accelerated, President Bill Clinton accelerated mass incarceration under his administration. And yet what we do in in terms of uh, those of us who tend to vote Democratic continue to support the same types of politicians using the same types of rhetoric. So if nothing else, hopefully this past election will have shaken up people's thinking and sent the messages to the political elites. I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican. We need a new era. Mm. This cannot continue as business as usual. Unfortunately, this was a horrible way Mm. to get that message across Mm. to the people. Before going further into uh, what a Trump presidency means for communities of color, for criminal justice, for your work, um, I wanted to circle back to that, that question of actual progressive criminal justice reform that has happened during the Obama years. Like, could you speak briefly about what, what trends have inspired you in the direction of reintegrating folks and even, you know, pardoning of certain criminals in federal prison who were, you know, put in prison for a very long time for small amounts of drug possession due to mandatory minimum sentencing. I mean, it really seemed that the Obama administration, especially over the last few years, had really pushed to begin to reverse some of those trends. Yeah, you know, one of the best things I think Obama could have done uh, was the appointing of Eric Holder as our attorney general. I mean, under uh, Eric Holder's reign, we really, I think, for the first time had a racial analysis from a federal government top official that found mass incarceration explicitly unacceptable. 
and looked at multiple ways in which we could reduce um, sentencing disparities. So the difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine was like 100 times difference for the same amount of the drug. It still is racially disparate, but they, um, you know, did some things to try to make it more equal. The, the mass pardons or the, the you know, that, that Obama is doing really, it really had to do more with shortening sentences. So it wasn't just letting people out. It right. was the, their, you know, basically time served and, and, you know, we're going to now let you out. You know, I think one of the, the more important things also came toward the end of his presidency, which was deprivatizing or, or the commitment to end contracts with private prisons, including immigration detention facilities. That is going to be in jeopardy. Really, all of that is going to be in jeopardy now. Anything Obama did under executive order, we know, is God. subject to be reversal by Trump. And so we know that um, Corrections Corporation of America, for example, the private prison industry leader in the world, stock soared after Trump was elected. So it seems like we are going to go back to this era. I mean, I feel like we're going back 50 years when it comes to, you know, not only criminal justice reform, but civil rights uh, gains. So all of that is tremendously troubling. I think one ray of light is that um, some of the most conservative folks who have been pressing for criminal justice reform are also now pressing and saying to Trump, you need to keep on this track. And let's be clear here. They're not doing it because, you know, they they feel some kind of moral responsibility. They're doing it on the one hand because economically, budgetary wise, it's not sustainable to incarcerate people the rates that we are incarcerating. Two is like, you know, just about everybody now knows someone who's been incarcerated. So someone has some kind of horror story of being churned into the system. You know, when we look at something like one in nine American men are going to be incarcerated in their lifetime, uh, according to the Sensing Project, and one in three black men and one in six Latinos um, are going to be incarcerated. I mean, these are staggering numbers. These are taking bodies out of our communities who could otherwise be contributing economically and disappearing them in facilities. So you know, there's an, there's an economic argument that a lot of these conservatives are now making. But the other is that, and, and the film 13th that has come out recently on, on Netflix makes a case brilliantly that there's another criminal justice for profit path that is emerging, which is the surveillance industry. So even if we're not physically now keeping your body in jail or prison, which is very expensive. We are now creating all of these ways of monitoring you, ankle bracelets and, and other forms of monitoring, and those are big lucrative contracts. So the surveilling is going from the facility into your home or into your community. You know, either way, I think that we as, you know, I'm thinking of Dwight Eisenhower's um, farewell speech when he talks about the military industrial complex and how his biggest fear uh, leaving office was that we would start using more military machinery, building up this military industrial complex because it's, you know, it's lucrative. And really the only thing to keep us from that is an informed citizenry. 
And so with the prison industrial complex coined from that term, it's a similar argument. We as community members, we as the public must be informed and must resist the shape-shifting ways of the criminal justice uh, so-called reform efforts from conservatives to say, hey, you know what, we're glad that we are, you know, aligned, that the system needs to be reformed, but the way that we do it matters because there's always unintended consequences of policy changes. And if we are not vigilant, if we just accept, oh, that's that's great, right? We have, you know, we're letting out more people from prison than, than ever, but where are they going, right? And how are they being monitored? And what are their jobs are being created around, you know, this mass exodus? And why are they going back over technical violations, you know, much of the time, et cetera? We have to be informed enough to ask those quit- critical questions which also means that we have to be at the table. Mm. And as boring as it may be at times to sit through hearings and go through in wordsmith documents, we have to have some kind of representation at the table. And so to invest in that as much as we are investing in our activism in the streets. Towards the end of our interview, we will, we will circle back towards... Uh, the direction of your direct advice or most direct advice for different segments of the population, you know, moving forward in this new era. But uh, at this point, kind of like to take a step back in time and ask you to tell us about your childhood, how you came of age, uh, you know, your roots and what, what put you on this path of fighting for people's civil rights, fighting for people's human rights. Going back. <laughs> I'm Let's going back. back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my activism isn't an option. It is a source of sanity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a child of a mother who had me at 17 years old, who, you know, lived in the projects who uh, had um, very, um, you know, generational violence towards, you know, particularly the women and the girls in my family, but also having an activist mother um, who was um, part of the, you know, Cesar Chavez, you know, farm workers' rights movement. So, you know, when I had my first sign uh, was around four years old when I was protesting grapes at outside of Safeway with my mother and not understanding why we were out there protesting grapes because I loved grapes mm-hmm. and not quite understanding the whole, you know, political parts of that. So I asked her, you know, you know, mom, why can't we eat grapes? And um, she said, because there's blood on them. And of course, in my little four-year-old mind, I did not know what that meant. So I thought it was literal. So I, every time I'd go into Safeway, I'd look for the blood on the grapes, right? But it was later that I came to understand that when people are sacrificing for you to put food on your table, 
you know, as poor as we were on food stamps, someone had to toil in those fields so that we could eat. We had an obligation to our community to give back, to speak for those people who couldn't speak for themselves. And that's why we were on the picket line. And having that at such a fundamental age of understanding struggle, and it's not about you, and the sense of the collective was embedded in me so that as I grew up, and even though, you know, we had, you know, my mother's boyfriends or husbands were, you know, viciously, you know, violent um, toward her and to us, what I started to understand was that, one, a, a girl's voice and a woman's voice was not very valuable. It could be silenced at the will of men. And then as I grew up and I had my son uh, as a single parent at age 21, what I learned was that now I'm a mother of a little black boy who has no one else to advocate for him but me. And so I have to find my voice. I have to reclaim a voice that was first instilled in me at a very young age, lost in those growing up years, and learn to channel that. So I think back at Audre Lorde, which is what I was also exposed to in college, around, you know, anger is a very useful emotion um, for women of color, but it has to be precisely focused to be effective and to be useful. And so I learned that, hey, you know, being called, you know, angry as an as an epithet was something that I'm going to reclaim that, hell yeah, I've got anger. You know, oppression should make you angry. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use that as a catalyst because if I don't express it, I will go crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so really my my activism comes from my modes of survival mm. as a, a girl, then a woman, and as, as a mother. And then um, I think out of that emanates the the love for your community to not want to see injustice. And when you see it, you know, being able to act on it and to say something about it. And so that's really, you know, regardless of the jobs that I've had, that's been the common, you know, strain throughout. If there's injustice, I cannot keep my mouth shut because really fundamentally I was silenced for far too long in my life and I'm not going back to that. And I don't, and I think one other important thing about that is what I came to understand about the men in my life who had been doing that to the women uh, and myself and the family, they were, they were all men of color. And it was important for me to understand that it wasn't about also, um, you know, hating men of color because I did not. I wanted to understand where their pain came from, where those particular men felt the need to injure women. And uh, I got context from this with Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye in, in college as an English literature major, but really her examination of looking at uh, a father who violated his daughter, but going back in time and seeing how his own self-hatred started in terms of his dehumanization at the hands of white men and essentially white institutions 
of oppression and and then how that generationally perpetuates itself to harming those closest to you and you know so I, I so the work that I do now working with incarcerated um, men and women but mostly I work with with men is thinking about what would have happened if you know my father or my grandfather or my ex-boyfriend you know what if they had avenues like the community reentry project where they had an opportunity to connect to resources to be accountable but not to be you know endlessly punished and shamed and humiliated but to learn a different way of being in the world and to have an outlet for their anger and their frustration to be able to say no you don't have a right to put your hands on any other human being and let's talk about that root of your frustration your humiliation that, that it's coming out in this way that's damaging not only to others but to yourself so i really feel like i've come full circle from you know not only looking from a victim's perspective but also looking from you know how do we stop future offending behavior and we don't just do that through stigmatizing and punishing people alone they have to have a path toward redemption litany for survival audrey lord <laughs> uh let's talk about race uh people are sick of talking about race <laughs> these conversations go in circles um as professor what is the single most important thing america needs to understand about race right now in this moment so race is a legal construction it's a fiction it has no basis in biological fact and it is no more relevant in terms of our biology as different colors of eyes or different shoe sizes but what gives it meaning is it was codified into law and white status was created by wealthy white slave owning plantation owning men who wanted to separate africans from european indentured servants because all of them were laborers but they weren't all slaves and so rather than white plantation owners saying to poor white folks working on their farm hey you know i'm going to actually increase your wages i'm going to improve your housing conditions was none of that it was you know what things may be tough for you but i'm going to give you white status and that means you will never be a slave you will always be better than africans and i analogize that to today that it's it's the same message but in a different time And so when we hear Trump speak about make America white again, we know that that's dog whistle politics, but for me it goes much deeper in looking at whiteness as a property right, which was mm. um the work done by Derek uh Bell and Cheryl Harris around looking at whiteness as status privilege, the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, right? A, a black man who was 7/8 white and 1/8 black. but could still not write uh ride in a railroad car 
because he had essentially one drop of black blood, which is a total legal fiction, right? Fiction which just makes stuff up. So we're living with that fiction today, but it's been given new life to be able to say to the masses of frustrated working class whites whose jobs have gone away, that their levels of prosperity that they used to have um, oftentimes in on, on the backs of folks of color or leaping over them. Now to be able to tell them, Trump telling them basically the same thing, you'll never be like the rest of them, right? Make America great again is really make America white again. And a throwback to you may have it bad, but you're never going to be like those blacks living in hell in mm-hmm. the inner cities, right? Or you'll never be like those Mexicans who are, you know, rapists and, you know, drug dealers um, who we're going to send back. So he's essentially promising them that life is going to get better just by virtue that you are following me and your whiteness goes back to a glory day mm. that us folks of color, we never really had. Mm-mm. So it's it's disturbing, but it's also disturbing. I mean, it's disturbing in terms of his rhetoric, um, the racism, uh, the misogyny. All of that, but it's also disturbing because it's history repeating itself. Mm-hmm. It's just repackaged kind of eugenics type of white supremacist talk that people have normalized and saying, hey, he didn't really mean it. Mm. You all are taking him literally. We never did. Well, you know, it's, you know, I would say then you don't know your history. Mm-hmm. Being that white supremacy is the new norm, which is an old norm, but it's it's back again, uh, legitimized and official, you know, in news, media, and political realms. Uh, what is the role of of people of color now in America's future? You know, I'm trying to be an optimist, even though I'm a realist at the same time. But if I wasn't an optimist, I wouldn't have gotten through all of those layers of oppressive circumstances in my life. There's always been hope in me that as bad as it is now, it's it's got to get better. Because if you just believe it's over, then we stop fighting, we stop resisting. So this is not only a time of resistance, but it's also a time of planning And it's a time of getting ready because the next cycle will come around that we need to be ready for. I feel like just the very fact that Trump got elected feels like a a last, last gasp of white supremacist domination. Like we've got to hold on to this with every last effort because we know it's not long before the um, racial and ethnic makeup is going to turn, you know, by what, 2044, uh, there will be no majority ethnic majority group. Mm. There certainly, there will no longer be a white majority. And so our whole dynamics are shifting. So we're almost like at that, that transition time, that tipping point and transitions are very dangerous times but they're also very important times. It's like the the transition between life and death, that it can go either way. And so transitions, we're in a transitional period Mm -hmm. right now. And so I think the way that we look at it is 
very intentionally to be prepared for what comes next and to not leave it to accident. We have to plan for this. We have to be ready for uh, when, when, you know, the, the tipping point does shift the dynamics. You know, we don't want to be like a South Africa where, you know, the imperialist powers pull out and then we're left without a governance structure. We have to learn how to govern ourselves effectively without relying on these same systems that were never created to empower us in the first place. And so when we look at governance, I was listening to a podcast on the way over here on, on Freakonomics Radio about social trust and social capital. And they were essentially explaining that, you know, the 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 communities that have the most social trust, so where, you know, I trust you, that you have my best intentions at heart, are those that are most cohesive. And those that are most cohesive tend to be actually most homogenous. So we tend to be more alike than similar. So when you have uh, great rates of diversity, there's going to be a lot of, you know, discord. But that's in the short term. In the long term, the diversity and that discord takes us to more creative spaces, teaches us how to work through issues in ways that we would not otherwise work through if everyone was like us, and you know, sparks some of our best thinking. And so we should not be afraid of those tensions. We should move toward the tension instead of away from the tension and prepare ourselves to, you know, for the, for the flux that's about to happen in terms of this transition period and to be very intentional about what we want. Mm-hmm. If we're not intentional about what we want, the kind of future we want to see, then we will get, you know, where we can still be in the majority, but still be governed by a minority power structure, which is essentially is our capitalist structure where, you know, we have the top few percent ruling the masses, the masses. So if we want something different, we need to envision it and work toward it now. Resonates a lot. I like what you said about this life and death cycle. And, you know, I was having a conversation the other day about how often we, perhaps it's not just a life and death cycle, but a life, death, life cycle. Yes. Where that redemption part at the end comes mm. in and how it's never really the end. The death is never really the end and how there's always something to come after it, you know, despite, you know, your um, spiritual beliefs about, you know, life after death. But even beyond that, here on this earth, there are things that happen after a death in your family and, you know, with friends, like there's there's more. Mm-hmm. There's always more. Um and and how that that's playing out uh, on a large macro scale <laughs> mm. of of seeing this life and this dying system and way of thinking and and trying to find ways to amplify the life that's to come after that and and who do we want to amplify like who do we want to put in front of the you know, mega speakers in our community in terms of moving things in the way that we want them to move. And I'm curious to know, um, 
if you have any, you know, who, what kinds of efforts, either led by youth or by whoever uh, in the community, whether locally or nationally or internationally, that you have seen that first come to mind that you really enjoy watching them work or watching them push these new visions and and uh, who may be a part of the life-death-life cycle? Like, who whose efforts do you really appreciate seeing in terms, in terms of shaping, like, the direction that we're going and who are preparing for this new direction that we're going head-on? I don't know that I have one model, but I have, you know, thinking about process and being able to see does that process work across different spectrums? So, you know, just just thinking about this concept of social capital, and really, it's around social bonding and 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 social bridging. So, whether I'm working with folks who are incarcerated or are coming out and re-entering back into the community, one thing we know that's really important to that process is their social networks. It's important to all of us, right? Mm-hmm. That's essentially what, what social uh, capital is. So the, the more solid your social network is, that is more important to your success than just about anything else. Because you think about it, you know, if you um, are social, you have social bonds with your family or your friends, those are the kinds of relationships that are close to you that hopefully will help to elevate you on an individual basis. But what if you don't have those? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the people that we work with coming out, the reason why they even come to our program is they really don't have a lot of those individual networks. So what do you do? What do you do when you're hungry or you're homeless and you don't have anyone really to turn to? So that is important. Then it's around social bridging, around who are those people who I may not be close to, but I need to have in my orbit, right? Who can help me bridge from one place to another and finding those networks. So, you know, this, this transcends any group, any collective. If you look at any protest movement, the people who are you're surrounding yourself with can help to protect you or can escalate a situation. And so I think that, it's important to choose that process of, of social capital, of really build that up intentionally, but sometimes you need guides for that to, to happen. You know, looking at which groups are better at doing this than others, those groups that tend to be from diverse backgrounds who are brought together in a structure that is intended to be supportive and to form a collective identity um, can help foster that social capital and, and help you expand your networks. So depending on what school you go to, but usually, you know, school, so university students, for example, right? We're coming from different places. And, you know, I'll tell students that I teach sometimes you know, even if you don't remember what you learned in this class or even other classes, you know, this course and oftentimes college is good for helping you to critically think and being exposed to other viewpoints where you have to learn how to have a civil discourse 
and you can't just rely on your own experiences, which are important, but you also get to hear from other folks. And so there are, you know, whether it's sports or, but just these kinds of environments where, you know, we, we come together um, and we're in this mutually collaborative framework. So I would just say, you know, look for those types of entities. If, if it's not there, if it's all about exploiting your labor or explore, exploiting your intellect or exploiting your body, mm. then that's probably not the place where you're going to uh, flourish. Mm-hmm. And, and again, be intentional, be specific about what it is you want uh, out of life. You know, I, I have a, a son and a daughter. And they're both in college. And I've never pressed them to be activists because this has to be something, in my view, that you, that you choose to do because there's a cost, mm. right? When you become visible, you become a target. And that's something I chose for myself, but I didn't choose for my children. Mm-hmm. That's something they will have to choose for them. Not that I didn't take them to marches and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. but I never said, you've got to follow my footsteps. You've got to do this. How come you're not a, you know, supporting this cause or another? But it really is finding their place, their space, their voice, and just being intentional about whatever it is and not just drifting. Because if you drift, um, it's like learning your self-identity and being biracial, black and, and Mexican, Latina. If you don't define yourself, others will define you. Absolutely. And so you've got to be very clear about who you want to be and how you want to be in the world. And I had to be shown that from my mentors, my social networks. And I think that um, others who feel lost, that there are folks out there who can help support them in finding their path as well. Mm. Definitely. Of course, that, that really resonates being of mixed ancestry myself, but also black and Mexican. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> definitely the, the questions of who are you, what are you, mm-hmm. and um, learning how to find voice within these two different, you know, lines of ancestry that you are navigating constantly. Um, and and uh, I think it's, I love when, when it comes out in, in, in unexpected ways of um, whether it's through through art or food or um, the way I build community, you know, um, you don't choose one or the other. They literally exist and coexist and they come out in beautiful ways and finding a definition around that and having to very explicitly with with my language, define who I am and gravitating towards words that, that I feel like give me the most space to be myself. And one of those words is mestiza. Um, I feel like I have a relative amount of room within that identity to exist in all of my multiplicities. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Going in the direction of brown genius. Brown genius. There we go. <laughs> That's the you know kind of concept for this uh, this podcast conversation platform. When you hear that phrase, brown genius, what does that mean to you? It was when I saw it, I was like, 
Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time. Like, there's a caption for that, right? Mm. Um, because, you know, we're both, you know, it, it's not an either or. Mm-hmm. It's it's a fluid. And to go in and out of identity or to be in the same space. I mean, so it's nice to be recognized for your mind and also recognition of I am proud uh, ethnically, racially of who I am. And right now, identity politics, I guess, as it's being called, is being criticized for one of the components of losing the Democrats, losing the election. But I just thought, this isn't anything new. So the fact that we can be explicit about the gifts that we have, the context that it's in, um, I'm proud to be on a show that is deemed Brown Genius, and I'm humbled <laughs> that I would be asked to be on such a show titled that way. <laughs> but but it just, I, I think it, it just speaks to the need that we need spaces to be able to have these complicated, complex conversations that impact our lives and our world because they are not still part of the mainstream, and we, we so need this. This is like food to me. Mm. So thank you. One of the reasons we, we really wanted to have you on the show and and, uh, and one of the reasons that we really respect you is your, your commitment to knowledge, your commitment to ethics and conceptions of truth, uh, which unfortunately is, is more and more rare in our society. So it, it seems like we're entering this kind of realm in American politics in which... Uh, there there are no ethics. There is no sense of truth. You know, freedom is slavery, war is peace, so on and so forth. Can you speak to these social and cultural developments in our society, you know, whether it's through news media or politics or education in which, like, knowledge, facts, and ethics just seem to be washed away in the day-to-day business of, of how things are being run? One of the things that's most insulting to me about the Trump win, aside from, you know, the overt racism, the blatant misogyny, is we go from a Harvard-educated black man who has to not only be smart, but be smarter than the other white folks in the room, um, fill in the blank of who they may be throughout his life. And... He's replaced by someone who many commentators have equated to a six or seven year old in the way he speaks. And it's not an intellectual snobbishness. It's it's a repeat of the narrative that folks of color have to be better than smarter than to get, you know, sometimes not even half as much as a white person who's privileged, who was born into wealth, who really had his success handed to him. So if he was a failure, that, you know, he would have been a total idiot. So of course he, sh- he should have succeeded on some level. And that people accept that as an equivalent success story. Mm. You know, to have a black man born to a single mother had at times been on welfare etc., worked his way up to the president of the United States versus someone born with a silver spoon in his mouth who can barely articulate sentences. 
is insulting to me as someone who has been a lifelong learner. Mm. You know, learning saved my life. When all things were horrible and terrible, I can always escape into my intellect. Mm. Even as a small child, to think beyond my current condition and, you know, up until today where I just feed off of information from different sources, like I want to learn, I have to know. And not just because I'm interested in the way that the world works, but because it's a survival skill. I cannot go into a meeting or give a presentation and I don't know my facts. Mm -hmm. I have to be hyper-prepared compared to the average white man or white woman for that matter. So... There's something about the intellectual dumbing down that is incredibly insulting to, it it should be really insulting to us as Americans, but the fact that essentially half of America who voted for him is not bothered that we have someone who is is substandard of of substandard Mm -hmm. intellect in terms of the way that he views the world and interacts with people is just really, truly frightening to me Mm. on all kinds of levels. So I think that that's where you get the lies being told repeatedly by Trump that people are okay with and say, we know he's lying, so what? What does it matter? Mm -hmm. But if Obama were to have said those same lies, you know, he, there's no way he would, he would last. He wouldn't have the level of credibility that he has um, in the world. So that's, that is so uh, frustrating to me. How do you call out a person who's lying, who's know that he's lying, who's invoking white supremacist rhetoric? He knows what he's doing in terms of stirring up white nationalism and then lying about the fact that he's even doing that. How do you fight someone who is so who who is such an an ongoing liar as part of their way of doing business i don't know because i'm so used to being prepared with the facts so it's a new front that we're going to have to deal with and um it's just going to be a new a, a new political landscape all right so that that kind of brings us uh back to the future yeah, sometimes we, we got to go back. And, um, you know, we went a little bit into your your history and, and how that made you you and got, and got you to where you're at. And now we're back to these past, present, future times, you know, where the future feels very much like the past. Uh, a lot of us are wondering how to navigate the immediate future we're facing so we would like to conclude by asking you for your most direct advice to the following groups of people. Uh, any words of wisdom for students? Prepare. Use this time as an incubation period because your time is coming to lead. And in order to lead, you have to have knowledge You have to understand the fight you are going into, and you have to develop a support network because going into battle to fight oppression 
isn't a one-time event. Any words for teachers? Be fearless. Right now, I think there is a lot of fear about what's coming, what can be taught, who's going to be punished, the censorship that people may face. And you've got to believe in what you're teaching in order to teach it from a space of integrity and credibility and to be able to defend it because you're going to have to. Activists. Prepare for the long-term fight. The protests are needed. We need to create spectacle where we are shut out of the public sphere in order to shift the conversation away from the falsehoods that are proliferating. But don't let that distract you from also preparing for the long-term fights ahead, particularly around public policy, which impacts the masses of people more than any individual action can. The artists. The artists I need to learn from. Mm. (laughs) They are our creative spirit and inspiration to keep going when we feel all is lost. So they can be our visionaries of reminding us when we are feeling at our lowest point what it is that we are fighting for and also what it is we need to be joyous about. We need to have joy also in what we do. It can't just be all doom and gloom. So we need to be able to take time to be both resistors and also celebrators of our accomplishments and the people around us. Women. Mm. Protect women, protecting women, protecting our daughters, protecting ourselves, and to reach out to allow others to protect us as well, since we will be heading into a time that will be essentially a war on women on many fronts. And if I'm going to preserve the rights that the women before me fought for me to have, I need to be equally prepared to fight for those for my daughter and my granddaughters, potentially, that may be undone by this president who clearly, President-elect Trump, who clearly has no real respect or regard for women. And so we have to be prepared to protect ourselves as we enter this time that will be tremendously uh, difficult uh, for us. People of color. Resist the messaging of separation. We are stronger working together. There will be much more said to pit each other by the power structure that is about to take over. And we cannot believe the rhetoric that is about to be launched far more profusely than we've seen during a campaign. It, is, it will now be in policy to pit each other against one group versus another group to remember our common purpose of gaining freedom for all of us. 
and not to parcel out our freedom just to make it better for some of us. People who believe themselves to be white. If you believe yourself to be white, then understand your white privilege because that can come along with that. It's not optional. And then think about what you can do with it. So you can't just leave your white privilege out the door because you don't want it or you don't recognize it. It's there. But to think about, I've got it. Now what can I do with it? And I can either do good with it or I can do damage with it. So be part of the fight. Don't just leave it to folks of color to lead you. This is about your future, too. People who are afraid. You should be afraid. We should all be afraid. But to not let that fear immobilize you. Use that fear as a source of information, planning, and then action. But if you live in your fear, it will destroy you. Mil gracias, Professor. <laughs> Thank you for your time and your knowledge. Thank you. Thank Both you of you so for much. having me. It's been wonderful. Yay. <laughs> This has been a Brown Genius podcast of future knowledge in present times. Brown Genius, where the full color spectrum comes to life. Mil gracias for listening to Brown Genius. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and spread the word. You can find us at browngeniuspodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Brown Genius is hosted by Molina Speaks and Cherie Love Mestiza Brown. Produced by Rodney Sino Cruz. <laughs>